0: This evening's scripture comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You may be seated. Thanks, Andrew, for reading that. And uh, kids, thanks for coming up, for learning about the scriptures. Hope everyone's doing well tonight. Welcome to Grace Community Church downtown. Uh, Who has made it through the first week of the semester? Who feels that the Lord works miracles and that is evidence of the Lord working a miracle? Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, how, many, how well did you feel on Monday when Zoom went down? Is anyone else <laughs> to me like, <laughs> there's a 1? I was like, can we go below 0? Like, I've been prepping all sem- or all summer to like teach online, and all of a sudden, by the way, Zoom is down worldwide. It's like, sounds about right, for 2020 at least. So <laughs> hope you all have had a good start to the semester, and welcome everyone to church. Especially if you're new, we'd like to welcome you. We're glad that you've come to worship with us here at Grace Community Church downtown. So we are in this series in Exodus, and we're actually getting ready to close the series. Uh, It's been a great series to walk through the book of Exodus and see a lot of what God did and uh, God's work in the lives of his people. And uh, today we're going to do something a little different, which is to see how Exodus kind of doesn't end with the book of Exodus. Certainly, the book of Exodus comes to a close and we move on to the next book of the Bible, which we all know what that is now, right? After our exercise with the children. Um, And so the biblical story continues on, but the Exodus themes continue on well after that. If you want to understand the intent, the purpose of Exodus... If we want to be students of scripture and understand what God is telling us about Exodus, much of what Exodus has to say, it it depends on what happens with those themes that start in Exodus and then carry through through the rest of the Bible. We're going to look at the book of Matthew and see how Matthew picks up on some of those themes and what Matthew does with those in his gospel. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, first gospel story about the life of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to jump through a number of passages in the first several chapters of Matthew to see how Exodus continues to show up. Uh, There are echoes of Exodus that just keep showing up. uh, And we want to see what Matthew has to say. Lord, we're so grateful to you for this day. Thank you for this beautiful weather. We also thank you, Lord God, uh, for how it just communicates your wisdom that behind the beauty of this day is your goodness and your wisdom and your power. Behind this day and The parts of this day that have just been so good and uh, enjoyable and just rich. It points to how you're kind and good to us and you want us to enjoy the good things that you've made. Lord, we also want to thank you for your word, how we can gather together and hear your word and how you've told us about yourself and we can know you tonight. We pray that you would communicate yourself to us. Help us to know you. Help us to know how good you are. Help us to know of your grace. Help us know of your work in the world that we're not alone. And remind us, Lord God, of the hope that you've given us in Jesus Christ, but also the high calling and purpose you have in our lives. We ask it all in Jesus' name and that you would be glorified. Amen. So as we start in the book of Matthew, we're going to just jump through several chapters and read snippets of those chapters and see what's going on. So first of all, Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. Matthew Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15 says this. Now, when they had departed, uh, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "'Rise,' take the child, the child is Jesus and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. So here, this is the birth narrative. It tells us about the birth of Jesus and right away, Jesus is being threatened. Uh, Jesus' life is threatened uh, by King Herod. And part of it's because Herod himself feels threatened by this this child who's supposed to be the king of Israel. Herod feels like maybe this guy is going to take my slot. Maybe he has his sights or he's destined to take my slot as king. So Herod, out of concern for that, is going to have a plot eventually to try and get rid of Jesus and get rid of these baby boys throughout Uh, the region. And so Joseph, Jesus' dad, is warned about this and takes Jesus to Egypt. What we see already in Matthew 2 is that Jesus goes to Egypt and he identifies with Israel's sojourn, their time of being in Egypt. Jesus is like Israel. He identifies with his people who had gone down into Egypt and lived there. But then it moves on from there, chapter two, verse 16. It says this, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So King Herod, again, is seeing Jesus as a threat. Maybe this kid who's been foretold to become the king of Israel, maybe he's a threat to my kingdom. I'm the king. No, I don't want this kid to take my, uh, my slot. And so Herod, in this ungodly and really wicked moment, plots to get rid of Jesus and says, well, let's just get rid of all of the male children in Bethlehem. This sounds familiar, right? If you've been in the Exodus series, we've seen something like this before when a wicked king, Pharaoh, plots to kill uh, all of the, the firstborn in Israel because he's concerned about how big Israel is getting. Pharaoh, back in Exodus, the concern was that there are just too many Israelites if these Israelites continue to grow in number, they're they're going to be a military threat to me, a political threat to me. And so he says, we've got to reduce their numbers. And so he has this decree back in Exodus to get rid of the firstborn in Israel. So they look really similar here. These decrees from these ungodly and wicked kings look really similar. And what happened at Exodus, if you remember, is that God works in a miraculous way so that Moses uh, is saved and does not get killed during this wave of Pharaoh's decrees that the firstborn would be, be killed. But Jesus is also miraculously saved. So what we see right here is Matthew is not only saying Jesus identifies with his people's experience of going into Egypt. There's also this second echo from Exodus. Jesus is now like a new Moses. Just as Moses was saved from this wicked king's decree, Jesus is going to be saved from this other wicked king's decree in Matthew. And just as Moses would then be raised up to become a deliverer who would deliver all of Israel from Egypt, Jesus is now going to be a deliverer of his people. But Matthew 1 says that Jesus will deliver or save his people from their sins. So already we see these echoes of Exodus showing up. Another echo that shows up in the very next chapter uh, is that Jesus goes from Galilee to the Jordan. This is uh, Matthew 3, verses 13 through 15. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. This is John the Baptist. To be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is now an adult in the book of Matthew. And he's going to John the Baptist, who's been baptizing people all throughout the region. And Jesus says, I need to be baptized. But right after that, what happens immediately after his baptism? Matthew 4, verses 1 through 2, tells us what happens after Jesus' baptism. It says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So Jesus is baptized in Matthew 3, goes through the waters of baptism, and immediately after that, goes into the wilderness for a time of testing. This also sounds like Exodus. The people of Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, and immediately after that, what happens? They go out into the wilderness for a period of being tested by God. God is going to test them to see if they'll be faithful and if they'll trust him. Again, We see these echoes of Exodus here. And what's really significant is that Jesus, now he's not so much a new Moses as he's a new Israel. Just as Israel went through the Red Sea and went through this season of testing in the wilderness, Jesus goes through the waters of baptism to be tested. But this is where the story starts to get even richer. What happened when Israel was in the wilderness? Somebody shouted out. What'd they do in the wilderness during their testing? Uh, Louder complained. Yes. I wanted chicken nuggets. I didn't want this. They complain, they grumble, and they ultimately put God to the test. They're called out into the wilderness to be tested and to come through as like tried and true. They've proven themselves as like reliable. They trust their God their faith is assured and strong, and yet they, they don't trust their God. They grumble, they complain, and they doubt their God. Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he has this picture of perfect uh, faith in God. He does not waver. He's tested, he's tried, and yet each time the devil comes to him to tempt him as he's fasting these 40 days and 40 nights, he stands firm, and he will not fall to temptation. This is where the story to me really starts to get rich. Whereas the people of Israel were weak, were fickle, were not faithful, and failed, Jesus shows up as the new Israel and he will stand firm. He will not fail. He will succeed and will stand firm where the people of Israel could not and where you and I struggle to be faithful to our God. And why that's important is that God had called the people of Israel, uh, to be faithful and to be holy and to be a righteous people because he had a purpose for them in their righteous living in their faithfulness to God in their holy living and their trust of God, they would show the nations of the world what God is like and they would be a conduit of God's blessing into the world. So God had a purpose for them by being faithful and trusting and righteous. And yet when humans prove to be unfaithful, unholy and unrighteous and don't trust God, the world always devolves into chaos and into trouble. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, it's not just that he's a good kid who knows how to answer Sunday school questions. It's so much more than that. Jesus is able to be faithful to God. And this is a sign of hope that the world will not be subject to deal with the consequences of sinful and rebellious humanity who continue to throw ourselves, to throw one another, to throw our communities, to throw society, to throw the globe itself into trouble, into violence, into chaos, disorder, and injustice. This is a promise of someone who will deliver the world from its woes, from its aches, because he's perfect, he's righteous, and he does what humans cannot do. He does what Israel could not do. This is a sign of hope. And then if you move on from there, in Matthews 5 through 7, I mean, the way that this story unfolds in Matthew, it's just uncanny. He not only goes through the waters of baptism, like Israel went through the waters at the Red Sea, and then goes out in the wilderness, like Israel went out in the wilderness. Where does he end up next? Matthew 5 and 7. He's at a mountain talking about the law of God. What happened with Israel after they went through the Red Sea and went through the wilderness? They end up at Mount Sinai where God gives the law to Moses. All of this in Matthew uh, 2, three, 4, 5, 6, and 7 is all like a retelling of Exodus. In fact, what it's saying is everything that was promised in Exodus is now being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. All of the hopes that were given to and through Israel that remained unfulfilled because Israel was unfaithful, all of those hopes and promises find their fulfillment in Jesus who finally comes And he's the new Moses. He is Israel. And he also comes to be God with us who shows us what the law really means. So Matthew 5 uh, through 7, Jesus shows up at the mount and gives what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a long discourse on the law. And so it says this in Matthew 5 verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is going to talk about the law here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. On this mountain, In some ways, he seems like a new Moses, but I think it's beyond that. Moses, when he was at this mountain in Exodus, he receives the law from God. Jesus is kind of like Moses in some way, but he's also, there's no intermediary. He's just giving the law. And this says Jesus is God in the flesh. He doesn't need, he doesn't stand between God necessarily and humans. He's God in the flesh and can talk about the law because he is God. Jesus is God who gives and teaches the law to his people. Now the law had already come and the law in many ways was pretty clear, but Israel had struggled to understand what the law really meant. And when they struggled to understand it and struggled what the purpose of the law was and also struggled with their hard hearts and their, their disobedience, they did not keep the law. And so it continually threw at the lives of Israel into all kinds of chaos and even the lives of people around them into chaos. Now, when God gave the law in Exodus, remember, he didn't just give these individual stipulations and these individual commands. He did, but there was a greater purpose. We talked about this a few sermons ago. God's purpose was that by receiving this law and living out this law, God would live among his people. Part of the law was they would build this tabernacle that Jason talked about in a sermon just a week or two ago. And at the tabernacle, they would experience the presence of God. But you had to keep the law. You had to observe the law in order to enter into that holy presence of God. And at the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt, it's a picture of Eden. It's like recreating the conditions of Eden. Remember in Eden, this is a place where God made the heavens and the earth. Heaven and earth came together. All things were good. People enjoyed God's presence. They enjoyed rich relationship with one another. Their needs were met. It's this wonderful place where heaven and earth come together and life is good. Life is good. And yet, uh, when God gives the law to, to Moses and to the Israelites is this picture of saying, I'm going to come down and dwell among you at the tabernacle. And again, a little bit of heaven. It's like Eden is being recreated and a little bit of heaven is going to come to earth. Heaven is going to touch down on earth. It's a picture of goodness. God restoring his presence to his people. God restoring his provision and goodness to his people. But there was a problem. Israel did not keep the law. In part, it's because they didn't understand the law. They misunderstood it. Sometimes they thought of the law as ritual. There were a lot of rituals in the law. How many of you read the Old Testament and say, yes, there are a lot of rituals in the Old Testament, but sometimes they became very focused on the rituals alone. And when humans try to think about religion, this is a really important point, I think, for tonight. When humans think about religion, we often think about religion as a way to understand rituals or incantations that kind of bend a God's ear or bend his will to get a God to do what we want them to do. So all throughout the ancient world, even up into the Greco-Roman world, if you needed something, if you needed something done, you would go to a God and you would try to use the right ritual, the right formula, the right incantation, say the right names. If you followed the right formula, maybe you would bend the God's ear and they would do your will. But what the law of God is, both at Exodus and as Jesus teaches it here, we'll get to it in Matthew 5 through 7, This isn't about trying to go through some ritual or some kind of ceremony to bend God's will. Really, the law in much of its structure is aimed at changing our will. It's designed to change us so that our will aligns with God's because God's will is good and God's will is perfect. Matthew 6, verses 7 through 13, this is within the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus reteaches the law in this whole process of explaining the law, reminding them what the law is about, clarifying it. He has this prayer, the Lord's prayer. He teaches his disciples how to pray. And in that prayer, he says, we're to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whenever we learn what God's good will is, his law shows us his will, but Jesus is having to remind them this is what his will is. And wherever God's will is done, his kingdom comes to earth. A bit of heaven comes to earth. Let your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. God's will is always done in heaven. But when believers walk in God's will, when we know his will and do his will, it's a matter of his will then being done on earth as in heaven. And it brings some of that heavenly kingdom to earth. God's law is ultimately not just about these ceremonies, as if it's some kind of magic to try and bend God's arm and hopefully get his attention and get him to do what we want or what we feel like we need him to do. The law is aimed at bending and changing us so that we desire what is good and we love what is good. And as we become instruments of God's purposes in the world, we do his will. And it's like a little picture of heaven coming down to this world where death, where chaos, where sin keeps breeding corruption and all kinds of this trouble into the world. It's about loving God, about loving others, not primarily about rituals and ceremonies. So think of it in these terms. When Jesus comes to talk about the law, what the, uh, the passage that Andrew read for us is from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus is gonna start talking about things that go on in our heart. And sometimes we might think that sounds like that's new. Jesus is doing something new. That's not what the Old Testament deals with. But look at the 10th commandment. Someone shout out the 10th commandment if you remember. The 10th commandment is what? Louder, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not covet. I feel like uh, on office when Jim is trying to get Dwight to say something louder. Louder, son. It's one of the best moments. Look it up. You'll enjoy it. You'll feel blessed and edified. The 10th commandment says thou shalt not covet. All the other commands, one through nine, are commands about not doing things. Don't take uh, don't bear God's name in vain. Uh, don't build idols. Uh, don't murder people. Don't commit adultery. These are all about actions. But finally you get to the 10th commandment and it says, don't covet. That has to do with what's going on in our heart. Don't be envious of what somebody else owns, what they have. Don't be jealous. Don't seek to like, desire their stuff. It starts talking about our heart. And the reason that the law does that is it's saying that, yes, there are these actions that we should avoid. We should not murder. We shouldn't kill. We shouldn't steal. But it all starts in the heart. The law, the 10th commandment is telling us you should watch what's going on in your heart. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount goes right for the heart, just like the 10th commandment, right for the heart. Jesus in the passage that Andrew just read for us says, look, it's not just a matter of whether you're saying angry words. You have to watch your heart angry dispositions really matter. And if you don't check your heart, you'll wander into sin and you'll hurt your neighbor. You'll do harmful things. Instead, check your heart and be quick to reconcile. Check your heart and be quick to reconcile. Lust, it's not just a matter of whether you commit adultery. Lust, lustful desire and entertaining that is a sin in and of itself. Jesus is saying, check your heart because it's out of the overflow of the heart that sin erupts. So the law is teaching us how to love God first how to love him most, and then how to have hearts that that train us and form us and shape us in such a way that our hearts are being checked, that we don't take advantage of other people, that we don't mistreat other people, that we don't wrong other people, but we love other people. So Jesus here is not saying something new. He's saying, let me remind you what we already said. My father and I, we already spoke. It's quite good in the past. And let's just riff on that a little bit here on the Sermon on the Mount. God's law is not a list of rituals for us to follow to try to bend God's will. Rather, the law is a guide for shaping our will to love him first and foremost and to love others, to love what is truly good. And each act of following Jesus' law, each act of following his commands brings a little bit of heaven to earth. When you and I obey God's law, when we do God's will, a bit of the kingdom of heaven invades this dark age. Are you struggling under the weight of this dark age this year? Am I the only one that is straining and struggling under the weight of this dark age? Is it not good when you see moments of God's grace as people do what Jesus commands and are gracious with one another, when people are patient with one another, when people love their enemies and pray for those who persecute, persecute them, is that not a picture of goodness in the middle of this really difficult season. Jesus' rule and reign, the goodness of his kingdom, and the goodness of heaven is manifest where the law of love is obeyed. And that can happen regardless of what our circumstances look like. When Jesus gave these commands, this was not an ideal context for Jews, (laughs) The Jews who were told to love their enemy and to pray for those who persecute them. Jews who were told, uh, these disciples at the the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount who were told not to uh, encourage lust in their heart. They were living at a time when they did not have total political autonomy. They were under Caesar's thumb. They were under the thumb of Rome. They were also living at a time when Greeks had been at battle with them. They'd been conquered by the Greeks several generations prior to this. Jews themselves were divided. You had uh, the Sadducees, you have the Pharisees, you have the Essenes, you have Zealots, there are Samaritans, all kinds of different Jewish people who have difference and disagreement. It's not a time of great unity. And yet Jesus says, the will of God can be done on earth as in heaven. And here's what it looks like. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. When somebody asks you to go one mile, go two when you give to the poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Nothing had to change with Caesar for them to obey God's will and for the goodness of that kingdom to, inv- to invade the darkness of this world. His good and heavenly kingdom can infiltrate the world where we live in small acts of obedience. Have you been in a relationship where tit for tat causes the relationship to continue to spiral, and anger festers, and bitterness festers. And in a sudden moment where somebody says, I'm going to extend forgiveness, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to ask for forgiveness, I'm going to put this relationship over being right, or I'm going to put relationship over my pride, or put this relationship over my hurts, and you extend that olive branch, you extend forgiveness, and all of a sudden, the goodness of that relationship comes back. Have you experienced that? That's a little bit of that heavenly kingdom coming to earth as we do the Father's will he restores the goodness of his world and it's a foretaste of heaven when that happens each time we put anger to rest instead of acting on it a bit of god's kingdom comes to earth each time you put the cycle of revenge to death by turning the other cheek offering forgiveness to someone who hurt you a bit of god's kingdom comes to earth each time you unexpectedly show someone mercy and they're like i'm not used to people showing me mercy that's a little bit of God's kingdom coming to earth. Each time you choose not to make a big deal out of somebody else's minor faults, because you know, showing, shining a light on somebody else's faults allows you to kind of hide and conceal your own faults, what might might be more major. Each time we choose not to do that and pick on somebody else's minor faults, that's a picture of His kingdom coming to earth. Each time you stop and choose to do. To someone else, what you would have them to do to you, a bit of heaven invades and infiltrates this dark world. So in Exodus, God gave the law through Moses so Israel could bear God's name and show the world what what God is like. And then Israel would be a conduit of blessing into the world, but Israel struggled to keep this law. They struggled to do what was right. But Jesus here in Matthew, he clarifies and reinforces that the law is so, so, so good. It's a way of uniting heaven and earth bringing a little bit of heaven to earth. I grew up Pentecostal, and there were a lot of church services that were really, really powerful, where uh, there seemed to be really high emotion. It seemed like God was speaking to people, God was moving in hearts, and those were really rich experiences. But I'll say some of the moments where I felt like the Spirit has been most palpable, the Spirit has been most present, and I feel like a little bit of heaven is coming down is not necessarily when there were all kinds of... um, high emotions going on at service, it was in these moments where relationships were strained as there were hurts, as there were wounds. And typically what you see when there are wounds are people being further divided, further separated, and and pushing apart to a point where the relationship just can't be reconciled. And there have been places and contexts in my life where I've seen people, because they love Jesus, they push through to reconciliation. And those are some of the sweetest moments and some of the most miraculous moments I've experienced in my life. And it feels like a little bit of heaven has come to earth and God is glorified in that. And this is what Jesus is calling us to when we obey the law and do what the law says. So in many ways, this law sounds like good news. This law sounds good when we think of it in those terms. How many of you would say there have been times in my life when I've done, even when it's hard, I've done what God calls me to do. I've I've kept the law and I've seen the goodness of his law invade this world. And it is good. I've tasted of that. But the law can also be brutal in its demands. How many times does God ask us to do something? This is one of those moments, Steve, when you need to turn the other cheek. I really don't want to. I am so mad right now. I'm so hurt. I do not they they need to own up to what they did, and I will not turn the other cheek until they own up to what they did. It's really really hard to do what Jesus calls us to do. How often for you, for me, you know, we know we should do something that's good. There's something I need to do for my spouse, for my roommate, for my friend. I know what is good, but before you do it, a question runs through your head. What have they done to me this today? How have they treated me today? are like, before I do what's good, I'm going to take a tally. And you know, I'm kind of frustrated with how they treated me today. Maybe I won't do this good thing for them. In those moments sometimes it can be really hard to do what is good to do what is right to do what is lawful as jesus tells us what is lawful so in that way the the law is good it inspires us with all this hope it's a great way of experiencing god's kingdom come to earth but the law is also really hard because the law shows us how many times we don't do what is right how many times we're selfish how many times we're in it for ourselves. so where's the good news there The good news is that Matthew goes on in Matthew 26 to show us another echo of Exodus. Jesus is not just uh, the God-man who identifies with Israel going down to Egypt. Jesus is not just the new Moses who's going to deliver his people from their sin. Jesus is not just uh, there to clarify the law. He's also there to be the Passover lamb for every time you and I break the law, every time you and I choose to not obey God, to do what is wrong, Jesus has become the Passover lamb to save and to forgive us and to wash our sins. So in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29, it says this, as they were eating at this Passover meal, it's clearly a Passover meal, Matthew 26, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So at a Passover meal, they would typically eat several things. There was bread, there was wine, there were some bitter herbs, and there was also lamb. There were a number of things that they ate. Here, it just mentions two things. There's bread and there's wine. There's something that's very conspicuously absent from this. Where's the Passover lamb? Where's the lamb? Why is Jesus giving them bread and wine, but there's no mention of the lamb. Well, Tim Mackey, a Bible scholar says, the reason the lamb isn't mentioned is because Jesus himself is becoming the Passover lamb. Jesus himself would be the lamb who would spill his blood, whose body would be broken later, just hours later in order to forgive Israel and people all across the globe of all of our sins. When you and I struggle to do what is right, when we struggle to keep the law The law is good, it can guide us into so many good things, but the law is also brutal in its demands. And when we struggle to do what is right and to be instruments of God's goodness in the world, when we struggle to honor Him and worship Him with our lives by obeying Him, there's the good news that Jesus has also become the Passover lamb to wash us and cleanse us of our sins. The worship team is going to come forward. I think this is just a great time to have communion together, to remember not only what happened in Exodus and what God did for the people of Israel, but ultimately remember Jesus. That God sent his son Jesus to die for lawbreakers, sinners like you and like me. To take his sin upon himself, sin that was ours, disobedience and rebellion that was ours, so that we could be washed by his death, be washed by his blood, and then made righteous, to be made righteous so that we could know his Him as father, he would welcome us into his family. We can know what it's like to have our guilt and our sin washed away. And we could also have the hope of eternal and everlasting life with him. Lord, we just thank you for all the ways that you're good. We thank you for the mercy of Jesus, for washing our sins. And we ask that you would shine a light on all the ways that we have disobeyed and dishonored you and not trusted you, not followed you. Show us the ways that we've been selfish or greedy or we've withheld love from other people, been self-absorbed. Show us all the ways, Lord God, that we have not done what is right, what is loving. But Lord, we also pray that you'd show us the goodness of the cross. Show us that at the cross, you love sinners in spite of ourselves and want to wash us and cleanse us so that we can know your fatherly embrace and help us to place our trust in you. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name.